You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Watching The Lord of the Rings, I noticed something that regularly the good guys get themselves in trouble and right at the very minute that they're about to be destroyed, a deliverer comes. Usually it's Gandalf, right? Sometimes it's the eagles, but often it's Gandalf and you think of that, that uh, uh, the scene in Hel- the, the Helm's Deep scene where all the good people and all the pretty people are inside the, and all the ugly orcs and bad people are out there. And there's this big battle that they battle all throughout the night and the orcs just slowly overcome the, the fortress and, uh, and all of the good guys in one last final charge go out into the enemy knocking orcs off the sides and it's about to be, end, about to be the end. And then all of a sudden, what do you see? The light comes up over the hill and Gandalf is there, right? Gandalf bringing all of his power and all of his armies with him to come and bring victory at the last possible moment, at just the right time, he comes and delivers the people. And so what we want to look at today is Galatians 4, 5, 4 and 5. Um, and here's what it says. It says, but when the fullness of time had come at exactly the right moment, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What we're going to do over this Advent series is just pull out phrase by phrase each week what the truths of this passage is. Now, we tend to not think of Galatians as a Christmas book. Uh, We tend to think of the Gospels, Matthew 1 and maybe a little bit in Mark. Uh, We we think of, of Luke, the Luke chapter 1 and 2 story. We think of John. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And those are great ones. But even as Paul is writing to this letter that he's really uh, writing a letter to these churches that he's really angry with because they're deserting the gospel, in the middle of it, he just throws these verses in here as he makes his argument not to leave Christ and go back to law keeping, but to see Jesus as a fulfillment of the law. He gives this passage that I think relates so well to Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's Christmas, Born of woman, particularly Mary, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So here's how we're going to break it down, is that today we're going to look at God Visit Us. That's, that's the title of our Advent series, God Visited Us. We just got done at the end of James chapter 1, talking about how true religion is that we would visit widows and orphans in their affliction. The idea being is that we bring ourselves We don't just help those that are hurting and vulnerable from a distance, but we actually come near, we draw near, and we bring the resources that we have to bear on their need. That's what the call is. The true religion is when God's people have a heart for the hurting, the vulnerable, the broken, the sinful of the world, and they bring themselves and their resources to bear on the need of another. And I thought, wow, what a great pivot that would be because that's exactly what God did for us in Christ is that God saw us in our pitiful state, lost in sin and brokenness, under the curse, unable to keep his law, unable to keep his covenant, and he came and he visited us. He came and he drew near. He took on human flesh and he drew near and he visited us. That James 1.27, we are the people of God who visit those in need because we are identified with a God who visited us in our greatest need. He came and he drew near. And so as we think about this and how it relates to Galatians chapter 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to visit us, to meet us in our point of need, to give us what we need, to draw near. 
he, uh, we're going to look at four things. One, at just the right time. What does it mean that in the fullness of time he came? Next week, we'll look at just the right manner. Born of a woman, born under the law. In uh, two weeks from now, we'll look for just the right purpose to redeem those under the law and for the right result that we might receive adoption as sons. So we're just going to wring out as much as we can what the Bible has to teach in these different phrases. And all of this is related to Christmas. God sent His Son for a purpose at just the right time, in just the right way, to do just the right thing at just the right time, the right purpose, the right result. And so that's what we want to spend this Christmas season meditating on. And we're going to let Galatians 4, 4 and 5 sort of be our compass through what the Scriptures teach about what God has done for us in Christ at Christmas. So the title of today's message is God Visited Us at Just the Right Time. At Just the Right Time. Uh, here's some visitations that happen throughout Scripture. This idea that ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind, Adam and Eve, sinned against God and they've had a broken relationship with God. They were banished from His presence They were forced out of the garden, and so now God feels distant. God feels far away. And yet God, down through the Old Testament, kept visiting His people as a foreshadowing of when He would visit them in Christ and looking ultimately to the day when He would dwell with His people. That's the promise of the whole Bible, is that God will be His people. He will dwell with His people, and they will be His God. So what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned was a intimate, close relationship, right relationship with God. God has worked together a plan culminating in Christ and then in the new heavens and the new earth is that we'll get Garden of Eden back, but better. We'll get the tree of life back, but better. And we'll get presence, the presence of our God with us even better than it was before. And so that's the promise. And so throughout this redemptive history, Throughout the Old Testament, God has visited His people as a foreshadowing of when He would come in Christ. We see this in uh, God visiting His people. Uh, We see Him visiting Sarah and then later Hannah in relation to the promise of a son. The promise of a son. In Genesis 21, verses 1 through 3, the Lord visited Sarah, it says, as He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So God had made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son. And then he had to wait years, decades, until the Lord visited and a promised son came. Similar thing happened in First Samuel centuries later. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of God. So we see this connection between visitation in the Old Testament and the coming of a son, a promised son. We also see that when God visits, there's a, there's a prophecy about God visiting his people. When, when Joseph is in, the, in Egypt and all the people are there, Joseph is about to die, and he gives this instruction Here's what he says to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you, this promise, and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. They spend 400 years in slavery. God raises up a deliverer named Moses. And here's what the people recognize, Exodus 3, 
Verse 30 and 31. Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and he had seen their affliction and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So we see the visitation of God in the Old Testament related to a promised son. We see the visitation of God related to deliverance from bondage in their affliction. And then we see in Ruth chapter 1 verse 6, Ruth uh, and her mother-in-law have lost all of their husbands and they they think about going back. Here's what it says. Then she arose and her daughter-in-laws to return to the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that God had visited his people and given them food. And so we see this connection of visitation and the preservation of a, of a royal dynasty because Ruth ends up becoming the great or great-grandmother of David. God is preserving a divine line. He visits his people. So there's a connection between this idea of God visiting his people and promise, deliverance, and redemption. God's visitation is tied to promise, deliverance, and redemption in the Old Testament. So then you fast forward to the New Testament, and there's this promised son to, uh, to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who will be John the Baptist. And Zechariah sort of doubts it, and so the angel says, you're going to be mute until he's born. So finally, this idea of visitation happens, and Zechariah, John the Baptist is born. He's going to be the forerunner of Jesus. And in Luke 1, 67 and 68, Zechariah says this. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So all of this promise of visitation has been foreshadowing, and Zechariah now under the Spirit goes, hey, the coming of John the Baptist and then the Messiah that will come after him is God's ultimate visitation. All of this, this promised son, this deliverance, this dynasty is about to begin. And Zechariah talks about it as God visiting his people in this baby that will come that is Jesus. When Jesus gets to the end of his ministry, he says this in Luke 19, and when, they, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So all of this stuff is pointing to Jesus And then when Jesus comes, his people don't receive him. And he says, this is the visitation. This is the visitation of all visitations, and you're missing it. Talking about his coming. Talking about his ministry. And then there's also this idea of visitation when Jesus comes again. When he comes at his second coming, it says this in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's just a a sweep of what visitation, when we're talking about God visiting us, it's this connection to a promised son who brings deliverance and is a king, is a savior. And then we see that in Jesus, he is the ultimate visitation. So God visited us in the birth of Jesus Christ. He is the promised son of all promised sons, the greater Isaac, the greater Samuel. He is the powerful deliverer, greater than Moses. He's the better Moses, and he is the permanent redeemer of God's people. He's the Davidic king. He's the greater king. So God 
has all of these visitations that are setting up for the day when he will come and he will be the ultimate visitation. And we look forward to the day when he will return. So that brings us now to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says this, When the fullness of, of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that me might receive adoption as sons. So here's the question. Here's the question I want to answer. What does fullness of time mean? What does that mean? When he's saying that, what does that, what does that mean? If you go earlier in the book of Galatians, he talks a little bit in chapter 3 about how the law came, but the law was really just a, like a babysitter. This is what he says. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. God had made a promise to Abraham that he would bless the whole world through his seed. And then the vehicle by which that covenant is going to be carried out is the Mosaic system, the Jewish people. But their laws and regulations were just a guardian. They were just a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you all become sons. He says, we were slaves under the old law. Don't go back to the old law. Don't go back to being slaves. You've been adopted through Christ. It says then in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, Here's what he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians. He's saying God's people were under the law to sort of keep them distinct, to sort of keep them there. But, but that was never meant to be the final state. They were meant to move out of a babysitter stage to now inheritors, sons. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So at some point, a kid doesn't mature to the point where they no longer need a babysitter anymore, and they take on the family business. They become inheritors. And that's what he's saying. He's saying the Old Testament was waiting for the maturity of God's people so that at just the right time they might be adopted as sons. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And here's what it is. When the fullness of time had come, meaning the Father had set a time, a set of time when the world would be ready for his son to come and give sonship to sinners who would trust in him. Does that make sense? You tracking with me there? This idea of the fullness of time would come. The, the Greek word there is chronos, sequence of moments. So at just the right moment, at just the right sequence of moments. Fullness is pleroma, which means the fullness, the completion. It was almost like God had a certain number of minutes that had to happen. There was a certain time that had to transpire when all of a sudden, yes, now the world is right for the coming of Jesus. So as we answer this question, we could go a lot of different directions. What does it mean that the fullness of time had come? We could look at this a lot of different directions, but I'd like to go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. Here's what Matthew has to say about this fullness of time. He starts with this long genealogy that just shows that Jesus is connected to the promise of David. He's the Davidic king. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But he's also the son of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham. And he traces that back through genealogies. And here's how he does it. In verse, in verse 117, he summarizes it this way. He says, All the generations from Abraham to Adam, or I'm sorry, from Abraham to David is 14 generations. So from that first covenant with Abraham to the, set, to the next covenant, well, to, to the Davidic covenant, I should say, there's a Mosaic covenant in the middle, is 14 generations. And then there are 14 generations from David to the time when Israel was deported. And then there's 14 generations from that deportation to Christ, 
14 generations. Now, it's clear in that genealogy, as you've compared it to other genealogies, that there are some names that he is skipping. But his point being is that God perfectly timed this thing. He perfectly timed the unfolding of history. He perfectly timed the distance from the promise to Abraham to the promise to David, from the promise of David to the failure of Israel, from the failure of Israel to the coming of Jesus, is all perfectly timed out in these chapters that God has been writing out this story. So God is not just winging it when it comes to the salvation of the world. He is writing the chapters. He is setting the world up like a master chess player. He's getting all the pieces in just the right position to make his move. And he is doing this sovereignly down through ages, preserving his promises. And at just the right moment, he brings forth his son. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Check this out. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, this is mind-blowing. So this fullness of time has come in such a way that magicians from a foreign land go, wait a minute, it's time. How do they know this? The Magi coming from the east, probably Persian in their background, have somehow, from looking at the stars, from looking at sacred writings, have gone, this is the time, everybody pack up your stuff, we got to go meet a king. The fullness of time had come, and these guys recognize it. How do they recognize it? I put up there, I think, on the screen, they come... They come all the way from Persia. They come all these hundreds of miles. They come to Bethlehem, or they come to Jerusalem. King Herod, which is sort of the Roman puppet leader of the time, the Israelites are under Roman rule. Herod is there. And they come to him and they go, well, where would you go to to find a king? Well, you'd go to the capital city. So they go there and they go, hey, we're looking for a king. Here's what we've seen. We've seen he who has been born king of the Jews, for he saw, we saw his star when it rose, which is a citation to Jewish law, Numbers 24, 17. These foreigners know Numbers 24, 17. How many of you know Numbers 24, 17? They know the Jewish scriptures so closely that they notice something's different in the sky, and they go, that's a Jewish fulfillment. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A king has been born. Numbers 24, 17, these foreigners recognize the fullness of time has come, and they pack up their stuff to go worship him. We have come to worship him, it says. Verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was troubled, because kings typically don't like rival kings, especially the kind that have the respect of people (laughs) hundreds of miles away, right? And all Jerusalem with him. So this was no small caravan, right? This was no small thing. We tend to think of like three kings coming, whatever. Like We just do that because there's three gifts. This could be a pretty large entourage to the extent that it got the attention of King Herod and Jerusalem. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He's recognizing that this is the Jewish Messiah. This is God's visitation that's coming. Now he's trying to resist it. He's going to kill all the babies there to try to eliminate God's redemption plan, right? But he's asking all of the Jewish people who theoretically they should know Numbers 24, 17, but they don't see the signs. These foreigners do, 
and travel all the way here. This is just amazing. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Micah 5.2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them when the star had appeared. <laughs> it's like right over them and they can't, they don't see it, right? That's one of the crazy things God's people don't see, but the outsiders do. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know that part, right? Did you know that that's actually a connection to Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 and 6? They see themselves as fulfillment of the scriptures. Nations will come, and they will bring you gold and frankincense. These guys know the Jewish scriptures. They know Numbers 24, 17, and they see the signal. They bring Isaiah chapter 60 kinds of gifts because they know the fullness of time has come. Right? They've read the Jewish scriptures in such a way that even the Jewish readers don't know. So here's my question. As I think about these magi, how do they know the fullness of time has come? How do they know this? How do they have the Jewish scriptures? These Persians somehow know the Jewish scriptures, I think, because of Daniel. Daniel was carried off into exile in 586 or so B.C., and he is in this, the, the nation of Babylon. He's carried off into captivity. He serves God well in Babylon. God does miraculous stuff. And then all of a sudden, the Persians come and wipe out the Babylonians, and Daniel still is like a high-ranking official. And he has this close relationship with God, and there are two passages I'd like to look at with you that seem, I think, to point to this fullness of time kind of image. First, under Babylon, the king has a dream in Daniel chapter 2. The king has a dream, and the dream has unsettled him. So he gathers all the smartest people across the land, all the magicians, all the, all the, um, all the fortune tellers. He gathers them all up, and in order to test them, he says this. He says, basically, um, I want you to know, I want to know whether or not you're legit. Do you really have the mind of the gods? Do you really have insight into dreams? I want you to tell me the dream and then interpret it. And they're like, that's impossible. He's like, fine, then death to all of you, literally. So he sets a date for the execution of all the wise men because he, he realizes they're all frauds. They're all frauds. They can't tell the future. If they can't tell me what my dream is and then interpret it, then they're all frauds and I'll get new ones. Daniel goes, hey, give me a shot. Give me a shot at it. And so he's like, he gives him a few days. And then in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, uh, it says this, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and exceeding brightness. So again, we're talking 500s BC here, okay? Babylon is at the height of its power. Nebuchadnezzar is the man. He's like the man in the world. And here's the dream that he has that God is communicating to him. Daniel tells him the dream and then interprets it. Here it is. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middles and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly from iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. So this is a heavenly stone. 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so this dream of a statue with different elements and, uh, and being smashed by this heavenly body, like a comet coming and destroying at the feet of this uh, statue. This is what... This was the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, that's amazing. That's exactly what the dream was. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you to rule over them, you are the head of gold. You're the head of gold. You are great Babylon. You're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you. So we're looking at a timeline here. Moving down the statue is moving through time. Your kingdom's going to come to an end. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And... A, and be a divided kingdom, with some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people." It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So this is the vision that he's received, is that there's going to be a succession of four kingdoms, and then a heavenly kingdom is going to come in with a heavenly king, and it is going to destroy all those other kingdoms. It's going to be greater and greater than any of the previous kingdoms. So if you think about this for a second, these magi that visit Jesus are descendants of the guys that Daniel hangs around with. Daniel has these visions, these interpretations, and they have them. Like if they have Numbers and they have Isaiah then they certainly have Daniel's writings, and they're tracing it. I think they're tracing it. I'm speculating here a bit, but I think they're tracing it. If they know the Hebrew Scriptures, then they know that there's a succession of four kingdoms, and they're going, wait a minute. Rome is the fourth kingdom. The comet that's coming from heaven, the star, the, the king that is coming, that will be the king of all kings, must be coming soon. And then they see his star, and they go, it's time. It is time. All of a sudden, the Babylonian Empire collapses, and then Persia comes to power. Daniel is still a respected leader. And here's what happens in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, so let me give you one more here. Again, this is all just pointing to the fact that God is arranging history. Uh, before I, I guess before I get to Daniel 9, I just want you to notice some things at how God sets up the world. So under Babylon, which is from 626 to roughly 539 B.C., we have the people deported, and they're sort of cleansed of their idolatry. They're sort of cleansed of their idolatry by God's discipline, and they begin to learn how to worship in different places apart from the temple. The Medo-Persian Empire comes in from 539 to 330, 
So there's a second kingdom there. And there really is more of a respect for law and more tolerance. The people get to go back to their homeland under the Persians. So they get to go rebuild their temple. They begin to have, be able to restore some of their culture. The Persians finally fall from 330 to 146. You have the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great sweeps through. And then all of a sudden, he is so dominant. That kingdom is so dominant that basically the whole world begins to have uh, Greek culture, Greek language, which then is now there's this ability to communicate. There's a common language across this vast expanse. And then when Greece falls and Rome rises to power in the mid-2nd century B.C., they have what's called the Pax Romana. So the whole empire is united, and they build roads everywhere. And so it's almost as if God set up the whole world for Christ to come. The Romans perfect the execution method of crucifixion because there's a prophecy about the Messiah being pierced. And so all of these things begin to come together, and now the world is perfectly set up. It's perfectly ripe with this Roman road system for the gospel to go all these different places, for the gospel to go out in peace because the Roman Empire has such a hold on things, for the beautiful and intricate Greek language to be able to communicate these great theology, this great theology. God had set up the world through these four kingdoms that looked like they were enemies of God's people, and they were, but they were preparing the ground, they were preparing the field, they were preparing the chessboard for God's ultimate move to send his son. And we're getting that pictured in Daniel chapter 2. Then we get to Daniel chapter 9. Now he's under the Persian Empire. Just hang with me here because this is just crazy, some of these things. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel, here's what it says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of King Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Jeremiah had prophesied that, that Israel, that Judah, would only be in captivity 70 years, and then they would get to come back. And they would come back under a man named Cyrus. This is way before he exists. Guess what? A man by named Cyrus comes to power, and guess what? He lets the people go back. So Daniel is anticipating, hey, the 70 years is almost up, so he begins to pray. This is what it says in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So he's confessing his sins and the sins of, his, of, the, nations, of the nation to God, going, hey, 70 years is almost up. We want to go back. We want to worship you. We want you to restore our kingdom. Is it time for you to bring all of these promises to pass? And so it, it goes on. He prays and he prays and he prays. And then we get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 21, and here's God's response. I keep losing my page. Check this out. Daniel 9, verse 21, says this. Oh, sorry, I'm in Daniel 7. Daniel 9, 21. Okay, verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the name, at the time of the evening sacrifice. 
He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay? So Daniel's in captivity. He's praying for God to deliver his people in the 70 years that he, that he said he would. He's now calling on God. God, is this the restoration? Is this the time for the kingdom to come? And God sends an angel named Gabriel. The only other time we'll see Gabriel is when? When he delivers a message to Mary. He delivers a message. The only time we see Gabriel is talking about this thing. Verse 24, he says, so Daniel is going, God, it's 70 years until you let your people return. Is that now going to be the restoration of the kingdom? And here's what he says. Gabriel says, no, not 70 years. It says 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So yes, the people are going to be able to go back, but the ultimate, the ultimate return is not going to come, not for 70 years, but 77s of years. Okay? Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. These are some of the most controversial verses The point being is that God knows exactly where he is in time. He knows exactly when the completion will come, and he has the ability to communicate that to Daniel. And what he's telling Daniel is going, yes, I'm going to have my people come back to Israel, but you still have a longer wait ahead of you. It's not just going to be 70 years until the kingdom comes. It's going to be more like 70 times 7. It's going to be a while yet before my deliverer comes. But when he comes, be sure. Be sure that he will come at exactly the right moment. He will come at exactly the fullness of time. He will come at exactly the right time. Some interpret this literally, and what they do is they mark from Ezra's return in 457, that decree that's prophesied there, and they say that if you count up the years exactly right, it ends to the day when Jesus enters uh, at the, um, at the um, what's, it, what's it called? The triumphal entry. So some say that you can actually take it literally, you can literally do the math on that. Others dispute that and say, no, you should interpret it more theologically, with this idea of every seven year, set of seven years, you get a year, year of jubilee. So it's going, to be like, it's going to be like the jubilee of all jubilees when Jesus comes, which Jesus seems to talk about when he talks about in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me, and I will proclaim good news to the poor, and he talks jubilee language. The point being is that everyone agrees that God knows exactly what time he's going to send his deliverer. It's not going to be in the time of Daniel. It's going to be a ways yet. But when the time is right, God will send his son. He will send a deliverer. He will send the Messiah. He will come, and he will come perfectly. So here you go. Bring all of that together. All of that Daniel heritage is probably what the Magi know. It's, that's where they've come from. 
is they're inheritors of these stories, these scriptures. And when the fullness of time has come, the nations recognize it, and they come and they worship him. The Magi seem to do the math from the scriptures and realize that this fullness of time has come, and they come and worship this divine king. So that's one answer of potentially many others. When we talk about what the fullness of time means, that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, this is one answer to that question is that you can look at the Magi and you can see that they, from the outside looking in, can look on the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew stories, looking at how God governs the cosmos, and they recognize when the king will come. And they recognize him and they see him and they don't miss him. He, they come and they realize that the one who is the divine king has come and has come to be born. So Paul, when he says, when the fullness of time has come, when exactly the right number of moments has happened. God sent forth his son according to a cosmic plan that he revealed in his scriptures that even outsiders could recognize and go, yes, this is the king. This is the one who has come to put an end to sin, to restore a kingdom, to vanquish his enemies, and to bring grace and peace to all who would bow the knee to him. So here is the bottom line. In the sin of Adam and Eve, all humanity lost their communion with God. We all lost it. But God made a promise to provide a way for his people to be with him again. He foreshadowed that in visitations down through the Old Testament. He visited his people in many lesser ways as a foretaste of the day when he himself would come in human flesh, when he himself would come and dwell with his people. God set up everything from the rising and falling of nations to bring about the birth of his son, to bring about the birth of Jesus as the ultimate visitation. As it says in John 1, the Word became flesh. The Word that was with God became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. He lived in our tent. It's kind of literally the idea. He came and moved into our tent. He came and became our neighbor. All of this, he set up all of human history, Roman governments, leaders, kingdoms, languages, roads, everything, crucifixion. Everything was set up perfectly. There's a decree that all the people in the world should be taxed, and so everyone goes to their hometown. And Joseph takes his pregnant wife with him to Bethlehem. And guess where the child is to be born? Is in Bethlehem. God gets every single detail right. He gets the exact moment right. He gets the exact setting in history right. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. God set up everything for the birth of Jesus as that ultimate visitation. And now we are called to, like these magi, leave everything to come and worship him, to bow the knee and surrender everything to this king, marveling at the massive plan of God in the scriptures, marveling at the massive plan of God in history, and realizing that he came to save those that would bow the knee to him. And so we, like these magi, should come and worship him. So I have just two points for you. This Christmas season, as we enter into this season, this, this celebration of God sending his son at just the right time, stand in awe of the visitation of God in Christ Jesus. Stand in awe of that, that the ultimate, the creator became man. And like Luke 2 says, the angels appear to the shepherds, right? Ordinary people. The angels show up and the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, even magi, even foreign wizards, right? Foreign magi. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's born this day, today, on the fullness of time, which just happens to be today, dear shepherds. You happen to be in the field next door. You happen to be here on the right day. The fullness of time, all of human history has been driving to this point where God entered the world. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, the exact right spot, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. It's like, it's like heaven opens up and all the angels are like, I want in on this. I want to be in on this worshipful moment where the fullness of time has come. God has come to sinful humanity and we want to be part of the announcement of that. All of these heavenly hosts, they don't just want one of them to do it. They're like, we want in on this. And they're all praising this exact moment, this fullness of time when God entered into the world. So that's number one. Stand in awe of the visitation of God in Christ. The angels who are with God 24-7 couldn't help but praise him. And so now we who get to receive this salvation should be in awe of what God has done through history to save us. The second is this, bow your whole life in worship and service to him. Mark 1 says this, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus's message. First words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Two responses. Stand in awe of the visitation of God in Christ at Christmas. And bow your whole life in worship and service to him. Just like the Magi. Recognize the fullness of time. Recognize that this was their opportunity. Left everything to go and worship him. That's the response we should have. Recognize Christ came in the fullness of time for you to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sins, to rise again, that you might be brought into fellowship with God. He visited us. And let's bow our whole life in worship and service to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news. God, thank you that this was a complicated message as I wandered all over the place. But God, the main point that we want to learn from your word, we pray that you drive it into our hearts, is that you were always in control. Every moment in history, the good moments and the bad moments were all being orchestrated perfectly for your glory, all being orchestrated perfectly for sinners to know that they are loved and they can be redeemed by the one who was born in Bethlehem. God, help us to be in awe, to worship you for how you orchestrated these things. Be in awe that God would be flesh and would come for us. God, help us to be in awe of what you have accomplished and God, help us to bow the knee to you, to leave our lives of sin, to repent, and to believe the good news of the gospel, to bow the knee to this king and to serve him with our whole lives. Lord, I pray that each and every one of my friends would be in awe of how God has worked in history and in the scriptures to bring about the salvation of the world. God, we pray that you would invite us to be in it, help us to believe it, help us to be in on this work you are doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.